episode, we get real about what educators can do in their classrooms to make a more equitable playing field, how to walk that fine line between supporting student activism and co-opting it, and how to juggle the competing demands of educational and intersectional change. Also, we talk local soccer. It's a full workout in this episode, listeners. I'm joined today by educator, parent, and activist, Life Lagueros, who is also my coworker. And we're talking about, so you want to talk about race by Ichio Maolio. Because we do want to talk about race, even if we might not get it right 100% of the time. Neither will you, but it's vital that we keep on trying and use books like this to nudge us forward. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this is Vermont Ted Reads. Books for, by, and with Vermont educators. Thank you for joining me, Life. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Uh, so my name is Life. I live in um, South Duxbury, uh, right near Harwood High School, up in the hills, foothills of the Green Mountains. Um, lived in Vermont for about five years. Um, I work with uh, middle schools around the state, mostly in the Northeast Kingdom right now, um, to support them doing student-centered learning. And I have the great pleasure of working with you, Jeannie. Um, And that has been one of the honors of my professional career and my my personal life. I've loved getting to know you and and becoming friends. and um, yeah, so we, we basically help, help schools and then do a little um, blogging and researching. It's basically my dream job. Thank you very much for those kind words. I have to say, same. <laughs> um, it's been such a pleasure um, getting to know you and your family, um, but also I just love how you push me uh, to think more deeply about lots of issues, but especially issues of equity. So thanks for that. And this book is part of that. So before we get into this book, what are you reading right now? I know your, your whole family are great readers, but what are you reading right now? Uh, I completed a book this morning. Yeah. Tell us more. Not just a book, but a, a grown-up book. Fully grown-up fully grown book. Um, because I, I read most... Most, uh, most of the fiction I read these days is like YA. Um, but I read a grown-up book, the the Overstory. Oh, I loved that book. Um, and it was just one of those deals where a friend was like partway through it, and they were just like, "You you got to read this. You got to read this. I'm reading it, and I'm getting you know." And they would give me updates. It's still really good. Um, so yeah, I completed today, and it was, um, you know, really really in. Um, I, I took me a while to get into it because it's like many different stories separate that flow into one. And ultimately um, I, I need, I'm not sure where I sit with it, honestly. It's like, um, I think overall it gave, it, it gave an artistic kind of um, perspective on many things that I've been thinking and feeling. And I'm definitely very interested in like following up and, getting a field guide and, and reading more about trees and their interconnectedness. Um, but I think that just in terms of like being overwhelmed and feeling like climate change is just a horrible thing that we'll never get out of. I think it was a, it was a nice, like different perspective on that. Yeah. Um, that I'll be processing for a while. So it was, it was very affecting. I know you and I both spend a lot of time out in the woods of Vermont. And I have to say that book changed the way I see trees, the way I sort of have a quiet dialogue with trees on my hikes. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, I think that for me, like just, I always feel like trees are, you know, a reminder. And then to, for this to say like, well, they might actually be literally trying to like communicate something that you could tap into is, is a really cool idea. Yeah. I, yeah. I hope it's true. Mycelium. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so let's, um, let's talk about this book. So you want to talk about race by Ijioma Oyo. Um, I guess my first question for you about this book is who is this book for? And why might Vermont educators and students want to consider reading it? I mean, I think this book 
<clears throat> I mean, I think broadly it's for um, Americans. I think that it's, um, you know, her, her part of her point is that um, there's like a systemic um, limitation slash dismantling of our ability to even talk about race. And then that gets in the way of changing those same systems. So it's, it's intentional. It's there for a reason. So it structures a way to think about and talk about race. Um, so, um, so broadly, everybody in America, we live in this, this white um, supremacist society. So that's, that's a limitation, but so I think that more, more specifically, I, I, I think it's best for um, discussion groups. I think it's just, that's, that's the way that I've, I, I read it through um, and then I've now used it in a discussion group over the last year and a half. And it's been really, really good for that. Um, the length of the chapters is perfect. The way they're set up as a question, it's just really, really good for that. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that discussion group, what that looked like um, and, and what, what came out of it, what emerged from it? Yeah. So um, basically the Waterbury public library um, through, I think it was through the Vermont humanities council did had a, had a speaker come about a year and a half ago um, and I, I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but he's a professor from Southern Vermont. We can, I can figure out who he is. Um, but his, his talk was on the history of race. And um, it was a good talk. And I found myself during the talk, like calling up transcripts from um, seeing whiteness from on scene radio, because I was like, wait, that's not the way I understand it. And I, I think you might have the history wrong here and stuff. So he got done with this talk and I was all fired up and I started like reading bits of the, you know, transcript and challenging him and stuff. And he was like really cool about it. I mean, he just, he was like, Oh, I see that perspective, but here, and, and it just launched into this amazing conversation with the dozen or so people who were there. And by the end of it, that professor said, you know, I've given this talk all over Vermont and this is like the best post-talk conversation I've seen. And somebody in the room was like, God, yeah, we should really like try to keep doing this. And um, afterwards, the, the Judy Byron, the, the person from the library was there. I ended up chatting with her and, and she was like, yeah, we just need a facilitator. You know, would you would you want to do this? And I was like, oh, well, let me think. And um, so my wife helped me identify like maybe this book could be something for that so we, we came up with this thing and started advertising it and just doing it third tuesday of the month and um met monthly for the last year and a half and basically read a chapter per month until the last few months when we've been reading two and you know by the end we had a list of i don't know 60 70 people who had come to at least one and um you know each one was probably like between 12 and 20 people um, and they, you know, we, I would use it as an opportunity to write something up on front porch forum every month beforehand with a quote from the book and maybe a link to something else and kind of, you know, a way to get it out into the community, even if for people who weren't attending and it just, you know, we kind of fell into this nice rhythm where we would start with agreements from courageous conversations. Um, the last couple of sessions we used the compass as well. Um, and then we would do kind of an activator that could be accessible for people, whether they had read the chapters or not. So it might be a little video or a quote from the chapter or something for people to kind of contemplate and then talk about in small groups. And then that usually left us with like 25 minutes or so to just have an open conversation where we were making connection to the text. And, um, you know, the hour goes super quick and, um, you asked what came out of it. I mean, you know, we just finished uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, so, you know, a couple of things. One is that um, last summer, this Waterbury Area Anti-Racism Coalition started. 
um, which we didn't call it that then. We, we basically held a rally. And since then, we've kind of created an organization. But I would say that um, from this reading group, that's how I got involved in that and, and a few people from the reading group as well. So we have some folks who have been doing this thinking and, you know, just the fact that we've been holding that space in our community, I think, meant something when it came to, to the action part of things. And then just thinking about next steps, um, I think probably what we're going to do is have a couple of people um, co-facilitate another round with this book and potentially use some of the same activators and kind of the emergent curriculum that we created or whatever you want to call it. And then maybe we'll have another group doing something like slightly more intensive or something for people who did the first round or something. So I think it could lead to a variety of kind of community learning experiences here. Life, I think it, you get at something um, with this process that's really interesting to me. Um, and it's this tension that um, talk isn't enough but if we don't do the talking, especially as white folks, if we don't don't start having the conversations, then we also don't act. Yeah. Totally. And so thinking about, I know you and um, our uh, friend and colleague, Katie Farber, and um, our friend, uh, Christy Nold and Emily Gilmore, our friends are, have been, and I'm sure other folks too, have been using the bar we approach, becoming anti-racist white educators to have conversations in schools about race. And again, it's this idea that um, as white folks, we need to educate ourselves about race and not expect people of color to do that for us. And that unless, well, while talking isn't enough, it ha we have to start somewhere. Yeah. I mean, and it, I, it feels like we need to have those conversations even in, in order to sort of um, get underneath our own internalized um, fears, racism, our own internalized stuff. Hmm. So true. And I, I, I want to like just point out a passage that she has about that exact thing. But while I'm thinking about it, you know, Barwi, I think is interesting because that's, you know, specifically for white educators. And with this group, you know, we, we pose it as a community conversation. And, you know, I think certainly at the first meeting or two, um, everybody was there appeared to be white. I mean, my, my, my dad is a, is a person of color and, but he can look white or otherwise just, he can, He's, he can, he's kind of a chameleon that way. So, you know, I think when you asked who it's for, I mean, I don't want to say that this book is for white people, but I think it's an amazing entry point into this work that probably um, people of color are going to find a lot of it, you know, sort of basic in some ways. Um, and then even with our, our group, we had people, you know, eventually we had, um, you know, a couple of black women, some people of color start to dip in and out, but the way they interacted with the group in some cases was, was really interesting. Like one of the people had actually moved away from our community, but she was like, Whoa, I wish that was going on when I lived there. And so she was like calling in from Las Vegas. Um, another person came in and some meetings she would just say, you know what? I just want to listen. And like over zoom, maybe she would just have her, her video off, which, which anybody could, but she'd be like, don't, you know, don't put me in a breakout room right now. Like I want to be here. Like I'm inspired by this work, but it's also incredibly painful. <laughs> and she would say, share that with the group. And, um, you know, the way navigating that was um, a little tricky, but I think, you know, as Oluo says, like figuring out how to do this work together, is you know, a big part of the work. Yeah. You were going to read something. Yeah, just to your last point, um, on page 230, in her last chapter, when um, which is titled, Talking is Great, But What Else Can I Do? Um, I love this little passage. This is actually the one that I ended up posting on Front Porch Forum for, for people. She says, um, talk. Please talk and talk and talk some more, but also act. Act now because people are dying now in this unjust system. How many lives have been ground up by racial prejudice and hate? How many opportunities have we already lost? Act and talk and learn and up and learn some more and act again and do better. We have to do this all at once. 
we have to learn and fight at the same time because people have been waiting far too long for their chance to live as equals in this society. So totally what you said, just that tension between like, I gotta act, I gotta learn, the learning is not enough, but like, she's just like, do both <laughs> all the time. Just go for it. Can't wait, but you gotta learn too. I think that that applies especially to, to white folks. Well, and I love that um, she's ending the book um, in a way similar to how she starts it. On page 45, she says, you're going to screw this up. And I guess my question to you, as somebody who's sort of been doing this work for a while um, and who works with teachers who are doing this work, um, is um, how do we get past the fear to have the conversations we need to have about race and racism? Like, how do we get past our own vulnerability and... and um, being scared that we're going to say the wrong thing or we're going to mess it up. Yeah. Uh, two things. I mean, I think one is just doing it enough, you know, like once you've messed up a few times and you realize like the world didn't end, um, you're less afraid of it, you know? So it's just, it's just the practice. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, it's, it's, it's relationships right? Like the more that you get out there and do it, even if you're messing up sometimes, um, you know, how you deal with those mess ups matters. But I think one, you're more likely to have authentic relationships with people that aren't like you because they're more likely to trust you. They're like, they see it, you know? Um, but two, those relationships, you can lean on them and you can say like, dang, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, sorry, I messed that up and I'll do better. And I know I'm, and you'll get to see it because we have a relationship and we're going to hang out again. Um, and um, I think that goes for teachers, you know, like if you have relationship with students and with families, you just have that little bit of extra um, room so that when you mess up, you can explain yourself as well as you can, but you're also going to keep in there and they're going to see how you deal with it. And, um, you know, for teachers, it's like on one hand, it's, it's the stakes are higher because if you mess up, like you have a young, you have young children in your charge and wow, this really seems like, wow, I really messed up. It's really amplified. But on the other hand, like, what are you about? you're about teaching and learning and growing with your students. So if you, when you mess up, like those are like incredible opportunities to model what it looks like to mess up and to move on and to grow. And I, you know, kids learn more from what we do than what we say. Right. So um, if you can look at it like that, um, then hopefully you can kind of see the, the benefits, the benefits outweigh the, the, the risks or the drawbacks. What I'm hearing from you in part, or maybe I just know this because I know you so well, is um, humility. Like being able to be humble and know like it's going to be okay if somebody calls you in. And I've had so many um, friends and colleagues in my life call me in gently or call me what I think of to my better self when I mess up, knowing um, that I want to get I want to be somebody who walks the talk and sort of pull me gently to my best self when I don't realize I'm not there, that I'm, you know, that I've said something that's misaligned with my core values. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciate that because I think it can be um, excruciating to be called out or called in, right? It can, it can hurt. And yet, you know, if we um, get defensive, it's going to hurt worse than if we are like humble and, and able to, to sort of say, Oh, okay. I need to think about that. You're right. I need, uh, there's, I have room for growth. Yeah. And this book can be that, right? Like, so when I look through the chapters of this book, I, what I really appreciated when I first read this was there were so many things that if somebody challenged me on, like, why can't I say the N word or um, what about reverse racism that I couldn't really, my language, my ability knowing that I had an answer, but not being able to sort of frame it in little sound bites was always hard. But this book almost is like a cheat sheet to that. But I can imagine for some of these, for some folks, it, it could be like, oh, 
oh, I've gotten that wrong in the past. Yeah. Right. It's a call, a gentle calling in as well. In the, I just, I think the way that she structures most of the chapters is just so ingenious for that because they tend to have usually start with a personal narrative or a story from her experience that, you know, certainly if you're in that latter category and you're like, wait, why is that a problem? Boom. It brings you there immediately. She grabs your emotions. She makes it personal and you're there. Um, and then she kind of lays out the more technical, like reason, you know, this is why this is, this is wrong, or this is why you should think about it in a certain way. It kind of gives the analysis secondly. And then thirdly, she always gives, and here's what to do about it. And so those three parts just within like 10 pages, is just so incredibly well done. I mean, that's why we, you know, most of these sessions, we really dealt with one chapter and we could have spent multiple chat sessions on them. And they're just so, um, so rich. So when I read this book, um, I read it just for myself, but um, rereading it in preparation for this conversation with you, it occurred to me so many of my schools right now are doing some sort of identity work, um, doing identity wheels with their students and helping kids think about um, their own social identities and the identities of others. And on page 12, I was like, oh my gosh, this should be, this should be a little text that we use um, with our middle school students when we're talking about this stuff. So I'm going to read a little bit because I really just love this section on page 12. It says, race was not only created to justify a racially exploitative economic system, it was invented to lock people of color into the bottom of it. Racism in America exists to exclude people of color from opportunity and progress so that there is more profit for others deemed superior. This profit itself is the greater promise for non-racialized people. You will get more because they exist to get less. That promise is durable. And unless attacked directly, it will outlive any attempts to address class as a whole. This promise, you will get more because they exist to get less, is woven throughout our entire society. Our politics, our education system, our infrastructure, anywhere there is finite amount of power, influence, visibility, wealth, or opportunity anywhere in which someone might miss out, anywhere there might not be enough. There the lore of that promise sustains racism. White supremacy is this nation's oldest pyramid scheme. I just think that's so powerful. And um, as I was just rereading it, I thought of Nice White Parents, that podcast and the way power plays out in that, um, in that story. I thought about... Um, I thought about all of the times we're asked to focus on class instead of race because we're a mostly white state. I thought of, um, or a majority white state. I thought of just all of the ways in which we talk about race without really getting at the way in which it's constructed for a specific purpose, which she lays out really clearly here. Mm -hmm. I wonder, my question I guess is, do you, like me, see potential for this in use with identity units with students or, or what might you do with this section of text? Um, I, I mean, I love, I love that idea. Um, you know, I think that this is a big question for me and for, I think, Vermont educators that I hear often, like, what is the entry point to talking about um, oppression ultimately? Um, and I think I've seen a, <clears throat> there seems to be kind of, I wouldn't say an emergent consensus, but there seems to be kind of a movement towards like identity. Identity could be the entry point and thinking about identity and then social identity. And from what I know from my short time here, that's a big shift. I think it used to be much more common to say it's got to be class. Class is the entry point. Like we have, you know, economic disparities in Vermont. They're really obvious. I mean, right now, 
during the pandemic, one in four Vermont families are food insecure. I mean, that's, you know, we know these people, they're in every single school in the state. Um, and so I, I think that identity and social identity and it's linked to oppression, absolutely. And I love this passage because it draws these things together. And really that whole chapter um, is it really about race, um, does that. And it kind of says, you know, what I think the chapter is saying is it's, it's not one or the other, they're intertwined, but it's pretty much always about race in part. And for me that, you know, if I want to go back to that kind of classic question of which one is it, which one is the entry point, um, I've come to the conclusion with the help of Christy Nold and, and others who have helped guide me on this, that starting with race is really important for a couple of reasons. One, because it's the sort of most central um, mechanism in our country, America. It's, it, it is the history of America. It's the way that this exploitation and oppression has been actualized. Um, and then secondly, that, you know, whatever your entry point is with these conversations, like the, the skills can transfer, these analytic skills of thinking through oppression and systems. But if you don't start with race, you might never get there. So in theory, you know, you, in theory, if you start with class, you can like learn a bunch of stuff and then be like, now let's think about race through these same lenses. Oh, wow. But it's quite possible that you just won't. Whereas if you start with race, you probably will get to the other, the other aspects. Um, but it's the hardest one in some sense. So, you, so taking it on um, first, um, make sure that you don't just never quite get there. Anyway, that's where I'm at. That's a little beyond the chapter, but. No, I love that you draw it actually to another chapter in this book about intersectionality for me. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Dr. Bettina Love, who says, if you really want to work against oppression, listen to queer black women. Right. And so thinking about, I'm thinking, I'm drawing a parallel to planning in schools and I'm thinking about UDL a little bit. And so um, in a way, focusing on class is like saying, oh, let's, let's teach to the middle, let's teach to the biggest group. But UDL asks us to think about the margins and what would it look like to center not just class or poor folks, but also poor black folks, right? Like to center class and race in our um, in our conversations in the same way that what would it look like to center our most marginalized students in our planning? Mm. And so I'm just thinking about that in my head about that structure of, because I think that's been an argument for a long time. Let's start with class and, and, and the same with feminism. Let's just work on women's issues and assume it's going to help everyone, but mostly it helps white women. Mm. Right. right. Um, and I, I love that UDL analogy because I think, you know, recognizing that talking about this stuff in schools is really hard. <laughs> when you talk about identity, social identity, connections to oppression, like, whew, you are getting in there. Um, and so forcing um, us to, you know, kind of think like, what does it take to create a classroom culture, a classroom community, a brave and safe space where we can like get into this stuff? Um, is a great shortcut to saying like, what is like an ideal classroom culture community, right? So just to recognize it's not, you can't be jumping in there day one, but it does um, really kind of ask, ask of us what, what kind of classroom we wanna create to be able to have these conversations in authentic ways. It's so interesting. Um, you and I uh, were on a team together at the Middle Grades Institute, and um, one of our participants um, from Middle Grades Institute, Margaret Dunn at Mount Holly School that I work with, um, organized this whole identity unit, unit, and she's teaching fourth and fifth graders. And um, she was a little nervous about talking about race with her um, students 
I think all of whom are white. And um, so it was the end of the day, the kids were tired and she was like, okay, I just need you to hang in there for a little bit more. We're going to talk about race. And they got so excited. They were so eager to have this conversation that she thought was going to be super hard and they jumped right in. And so we know um, we've been hearing stories of lots of students in Vermont who are passionate about talking about race and racism in school and out. And um, I guess, I, I guess what are some ways do you think that schools can honor that passion and find ways to help students document their learning sort of maybe in a PLP or in some other way so that, so that it's not just like, Oh, you're having that conversation on the side, but this is an important learning. And how can you show evidence of all the learning you're doing in this area? I think it's where we started, right? Turning it into action. What can they do to influence the world? Um, and, you know, that's at a basic level, that's just teaching others. I mean, I, I feel like this is something, you know, as we're in these learning spaces, I often hear white people like, what do I do with this? What I, I, I'm not sure. I'm still not sure, you know, other than showing up at rallies, like what, what am I doing? And um, one starter step is teach somebody else. Like, that's an action, you know, um, it could be your, your uncle. <laughs> uh, it could be your community. Um, you know, my eight-year-old a few weeks ago, like just started making a slideshow, you know, and it was like um, COVID and BLM. And, uh, you know, she's got a slide, like, what is BLM? What is Black Lives Matter? You know, and she's like trying to express it, right? And we're like, yeah, we got to get this out to your relatives. Like they won't listen to me, but they might listen to you. So, um, you know, that's a starting point, but um, certainly like, you know, community-based learning, thinking about different organizations that you could be getting, that students could be connecting with who are doing this work on the ground and how they could be um, supporting that and influencing that. Like that's, um, you know, that's that's putting it into action. And then hopefully with all of those things, there's some chances for reflection and documentation through a PLP or otherwise, where they're consolidating their learning and charting their journey and um, something to look back at later and say, wow, look what I did and look how I've grown now. I love that. And I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter rally I attended last spring that was um, organized by Rutland High School students. Right. And then I'm thinking about um, the SOAR students at Tuttle, the students organizing against racism, students teaching both their um, the educators in their building, as well as those of us who attend Dynamic Landscapes or the Roland Founda Foundation Conference, more about intersectionality and how to call out and call in when they hear racism. Or the students who at Winooski who are asking for a more racially diverse curriculum, right, and more um, anti-racist uh, teaching approaches. Um, I'm thinking about YPAR at Edmonds and all of the students all over the state of Vermont who advocated for flying um, and agitated for flying the Black Lives Matter flag. All of that is evidence, right? And I'm wondering about, um, oh, I guess I'm wondering about, um, are those flexible pathways, are those ways like for kids to do personally meaningful work being honored at schools? Are they? Is this the question? Are, whether yeah, they are, are or, they, or how can they be, or how can we start to incorporate this kind of work into our proficiency-based system and give kids credit for this hard work? Because it often feels like it's extracurricular. Yeah. I mean, I think that <laughs> that's 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 a tough one. I mean, I honestly think that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, our systems are set up in a way that has white dominant culture built in so deeply that by the time they would be truly honoring this work, it almost feels like a co-opting. So for example, if you're going to try to grade students, 
on their ability to um, act on what they're learning about oppression. Um, you're putting them into, now you're what? Sorting and ranking them based on <laughs> how well they're responding to our hegemonic forces. I mean, it, it just, it, it's like almost antithetical, you know? Um, just thinking about like my daughter, I just gave that example. Like that slideshow was for nobody. She wasn't doing that for school. She was doing it for herself. She shared with the family what she, what, the way she talked about BLM. I was just like, wow. Okay. I, I didn't even know you understood it that well. Amazing. Or, um, you know, Christy Nold and Tuttle, right? As you mentioned, SOAR. Um, you know, a lot of what those students are working on, yeah, they're not part of PLPs. They're not part of the curriculum. It's, 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 it is extracurricular, technically, but they're interwoven. I mean, they're changing, you know, the displays in the library. They're standing in the hallways bearing witness, you know, with signs. They're ready to jump on those moments to speak up and speak out. Um, so trying to like measure it feel you know we're going for a collective movement like it's not competitive it's like the opposite you know when when christy a couple of years ago i had the honor of documenting her um, identity and equity unit and it culminated you know there was there was a performance assessment to see like where kids had gotten some of the concepts and I had a chance to interview a bunch of these kids and just the way they were talking was so sophisticated, just blew me away um, beyond what you'd hear from 90% of adults in, in Vermont for sure. But the, the real culmination of it was art. You know, she brought in teaching artists. Some students did spoken word stories. Some students did visual art. Some students did um, uh, poetry. Um, and it, they held a, a, you know, a big event where students shared and there wasn't a grade because it, it was what it was. It was like, we came together, you know, you expressed yourself by doing something, by weaving your identity and your fire into the, this expression. That's it. We experienced it together. Um, and almost feeling like, yeah, putting a grade on that would, would be, you know, just, that, that was her decision. And I agree with it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely not interested in grading um, this kind of work, but I am interested in valuing it. And I'm thinking about how, um, how powerful it is when students do this work that they're demonstrating uh, your own daughter communication skills, right? Or um, creativity and problem solving and being able to identify and uh, advocate for a change in policy that's racist, right? Or, um, or in the case of students flying the Black Lives Matter flag, like overcoming, um, figuring out how to communicate to the public, to the community, and, um, and persevering in the face of opposition. Like, how is that not self-direction? Totally. And so I, while I agree that a grade is inadequate, and that feels like part of the oppressive system that we're, we're seeking to shake up, I also feel like there are so many ways in which we don't value the authentic work of students that demonstrates deep learning. Yeah, I agree. No, I mean, I feel like if we could get, you know, it's almost like where syst most systems are now, I feel like don't even try because it's going to mess it up. Yeah. But definitely this comes to one of these places of convergence where like, if we could have a transformation of the systems, so that flexible pathways were reality and they were honored through, you know, story and connections with those, um, those areas of growth, you know, student-led connections, um, that'd be awesome. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. Like, I would love to see it go there. So, I, I, yeah, that leads to this next question that I have, which is I'm thinking about, um, Ijeoma Oyo and also Ibram X. Kendi, they both define racism in this way that moves it away from individual hatred 
this sort of like individual racism or somebody saying words that are offensive to this idea of systems of oppression, including schools, right? And you and I are in the business of systems change in schools, right? And so I guess my question for you is what do systems, school systems, need to do in order for education to become more equitable in Vermont? Wow, you don't mess around with these questions. <laughs> Could you just solve everything, life? <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think what we just talked about, I think the the competition like ethos of schools is a huge basis for inequity. And I think that comes out in grades, um, but it comes out in other ways, you know, like that there's this idea that, um, you know, parents' jobs are to advocate for the quote unquote success of their specific kids when success is defined as somehow doing better than others. Um, so there's definitely like, there's, there's just this like ethos thing that is like a really big thing to tackle. But I'm, I think that some of the, you know, what's come under the, the standards of personalized learning are ways to to do that. I think challenging like grading is, is hitting that head on. And I think that's why it's, it's so hard and it causes so much controversy because ultimately, yeah, those, you know, grading, sorting, ranking, that's all part of the whole, that's what race was created for. Um, it's part of that pyramid scheme. That's right. It is the pyramid screen. Well, however bad you off you are, there's somebody that's below you. So, you know, you're doing good and you, you might be able to climb the ladder. Yeah. All that stuff. So I think getting into a place where it could just be more of a collective endeavor. Um, I think that, you know, certainly like to do that, we need to have investment. Like, I just, I don't know. I just don't think we can transform our school system without further investment. I just don't think there's enough people, enough time or energy to go around. Like it, we can't get that far from the status quo and the, tr the, the shifts are too incremental as long as it there's like a scarcity um, situation happening. You know, right. It seems like scarcity is um, one of the fundamental principles of the idea of the pyramid system, too. There's not enough, as opposed to thinking there's an about like an, a scarcity versus abundance. There's an abundance, and how do we make sure everyone gets what they need versus there's not enough panic? How do I get what I need? Right. Totally. Totally. And just, yeah, it's just like, it's, it's a limited amount of opportunity. So we have to figure out some system for who gets those. It's a zero sum game, right? Like that there are I mean, winners and losers as opposed to thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I, we I've can all be learners. Like, yeah. Like I think, you know, uh, school sports, right. It's a place where competition shows up. And I've just been lately thinking about like from our local high school, we had a half dozen girls be told this year, you cannot play soccer anymore. Sorry, you're done. And I'm just thinking about like, how is that okay? Oh my <laughs> you know, gosh, that a, breaks my heart. It is. It, we have a beautiful community soccer program. So many kids play it. They get so much out of it. And now they're in ninth grade you know, just young teenagers. And you're going to say, mm, yeah, not for you anymore. And, I, and I've, I've been talking to people in my community about this because I'm just like blown away. And somebody told me, oh yeah, well, you know, one of the girls came to the practice and she, you know, it was a three-day tryout, right? On day two, she she threw up because she was so out of shape. So, you know, maybe she, maybe she doesn't deserve it, right? And I'm thinking that is the most backwards thing I've ever heard. This kid wants to come and run around every day and you're going to say... <laughs> you don't deserve it. Like how good would that be for that child? Right. And I'm coaching third and fourth, fourth graders thinking, which of these kids at some point there, our community is just going to say, Hey, no, you love this. No, it's really good for you, but sorry. Right. Like, so again, what would that take for our high school to offer another six slots? Even if we had to offer another JV team, like this stipend's like a couple thousand dollars a year. 
it's like pennies for like what could happen, you know, even if we had to say at 12th grade, okay, now it's varsity or bust. Like if that, if you had to leave that room in place, you could still give these kids three more years of involvement. So I just see that at every turn. I think right now during the pandemic, it's so obvious that teachers don't, they don't have the support they need or administrators, you know, people who are like in the school, they're just fighting and it's just heartbreaking because it really comes back to investment and resources. So I feel like that's a place where, you know, Act 77, personalized learning, different kinds of how are we gonna, you know, they're coming back to an idea that if we could only incentivize people to work harder, then, you know, or change slightly the way they're doing it within the confines of you have this many kids and you're in a classroom and you have to chug them through this many hours a day. But unless we have like investment, we can't really change it. Um, I love the way you use sports as that analogy, because it's really clear, like you only deserve to do this if you're good at it. Wait, what? And I recall my, I had an exchange student and she worked so hard to learn to play basketball. She wanted to play on the basketball team. She'd never played basketball before. She's from Mongolia. And, um, and she got cut and she cried for two days on my shoulder, two days. She cried on my shoulder before she took up track and yeah, track was fine, but she wanted a team. She wanted to be on a team and she missed that opportunity because of exactly what you're talking about. And I just, I think that really, um, you shed new light on that for me and thinking about how often we do that, whether it's gifted and talented programs, like who we think it's okay to leave you out because you're not good enough. Yeah. Right. And in the, in the arguments, you know, like, sure. Like there's, there's a broader like social thing going that makes us think that we don't have enough. Right. The scarcity thing is like an overarching narrative. Right. But there's also like this justification that, well, you know, that's what the real world is like, you know, so we're, they're going to have to, you know, that kid's going to have to leave high school at some point and go out into a world where she's not going to get a, a winner's medal for not being good enough. So we have to toughen them up. And so I think that's like another place to just say, like, our school system should be a place where we do everything we can to create what the world should be. Yes, not yes. Or like a world that's already messed up. And, you know, we should have this as a place to, to dream and to just go beyond what we even think is possible at the moment and to like, let the kids, you know, the students lead us because their ability to dream is so much beyond ours, you know, mine as a white male adult. Um, and so, you know, I think that some things like you know, I, I think the other obvious thing for how to change is like to bring in, you know, truly powerful curriculum. And that means both like the flexible pathways we're talking about where kids are actually doing stuff in the real world, but also just the stuff that they are learning about, you know, that um, black history and these forms of resistance and learning about oppression from an early age and making sure that there's no kids in this state, white or otherwise that come out of our school system not understanding these things and not being able to analyze it and not be like motivated to think like this, this has got to be better. Um, Oh my gosh. I have two questions, very different based on what you just said. So uh, I'm just going to try to figure out. I have a passage I want to share too, that I think is really related to that. Why don't you go ahead and read your passage? I would love that. So so this is from the chapter. um, Why are our students so angry? Um, which in our group was a really powerful discussion because we we had so many educators involved. Um, But Aluo shares the the story of of, of her her own child and what they're going through and just some of the stuff they've experienced in school. And she comes back to at the end of the chapter, this is on page 188, just kind of like reflecting on like, I know a lot, but I trust that our kids actually know more. They're doing stuff that will just blow our minds if we let them. Um, And so she says, she's talking about the adult generation. This is the same for our role as the adult generation in society. It is our role not to shape the future, but to not things up so badly that our kids will be too busy correcting the past to focus on the future. 
It is our job to be confused and dismayed by the future generation and trust that if we would just stop trying to control them and instead support them, they will eventually find their way. My goal as a writer and an activist is not to shape future generations. I hope to give a platform, a foundation for our young people to build upon and then smash to bits when it is no longer needed. That is what our kids are doing right now with all the work we have done, all that we have dedicated to them. They're building upon it so that they can smash it all down. And it's a beautiful thing to see. I, I think that applies to teachers, you know? Like if you're teaching about identity and oppression and analyzing systems and changing the world, you're not just like trying to create little you know, automatons to do your bidding, you're giving them a platform <laughs> and then you're saying, I'll support you however you end up doing it because it's probably going to be better than the way I've tried to do it because look where we are right now. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I think that goes doubly for a state like Vermont where we tend to pat ourselves on the back about our exceptionalism and say, things are great. Yeah, they're not so great. <laughs> Well, and, and what I'm hearing and what I'm thinking about is um, I'm thinking about this concept of standing on the shoulders of giants and this way in which knowledge is always moving forward. So you know that I'm doing all this work in culturally responsive pedagogies, which Gloria Latz and Billing started as culturally relevant pedagogies. And it's grown because people pushed on it a little further and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, right? Like, what about not just relevant, but responsive. And then what, not just responsive, but sustaining. And so this idea that knowledge and understanding grows over time, and that's what we want for our students, right? We want them to see the ways we come up short and, and take it to the next step, right? Or rebuild it so it's even better. And- um, Absolutely. Can I just say one thing about that? Yeah. I think that that um, idea you cited from Bettina Love earlier speaks to that. Because when you're saying, look to queer black women, part of what you're saying is they know <laughs> what's going, like if you wanna stand on the shoulder of giants, they've been fighting this fight for a long time and you start there and you're starting at the best possible place to then go and shift things a little bit to make it a little stronger. There's so much expertise there, you know? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things, so I saw Ijeoma Olio speak in um, the fall of 2019. She was at the school reform initiative um, fall meeting. And um, one of the things she said there, one of her like first things she said specific to schools, because this book isn't specific to schools, but, um, but she does mention schools a lot, right? So one of the things she said is that we should ground our work in the non-negotiable belief in the humanity and dignity of people of color instead of the edification of whiteness, which I didn't get at first, but then she expanded on that. And she said specifically, and I, I think that you and I will both recognize this at work in the schools we work with. Specifically, um, I think she's talking about pacing for privilege, right? And so she says, you know, you bring up race or racism at MGI or at a school meeting or whatever, and you're going to, you're going to inevitably hear from like, well, except for those, those two people, they don't want to talk about it and they're still good teachers. And so my first question would be like, who are they good teachers for, right? I, I, can you be a good teacher and not think about equity and race? And my second is, so she says- no. Yeah, <laughs> yes, thank you for answering my rhetorical question. And then what she says is, why are we spending so much of our energy trying to change one or two people? Like, why not just continue to do the work and make these resistors obsolete? And so I guess I'm asking you that. Have you seen schools who are like, yeah, I hear you. You're not willing to do the work, but the rest of us are going to continue to do the work. Because it seems to me a lot of times what we do is we back off because we've just made a couple people uncomfortable. Meanwhile, all the people of color, either on faculty or the students are already uncomfortable, but we're pacing, we're like backing off because we've just, we're doing that edification of whiteness. We're making the white people feel comfortable. I guess I'm asking your thoughts on that. Mm. Um. Have I seen places that are 
like pushing it forward in a sustained way. Um, I think that the, the edification is, is far more common and typical. Um, I think like even in places where, you know, there's like a collective commitment and a certain amount of investment, I see folks who, who, who are really want to move are feeling like this is just so slow. <laughs> and so I get the concept of saying like, you got to go move at the pace of the need, but um, it's just super complicated. I mean, there's, there's a whole urgency thing of white dominant culture that you don't want to fall into, but also like the real paradox, especially in predominantly white institutions is how to do the work without um, amplifying the harm, right? I mean, you know, from the outset, the harm is going to fa fall disproportionately to the people that are always impacted by this stuff, most impacted uh, people of color. So that's a given, but the faster you go is, does it hurt worse? Um, and so if you're saying like, there's some people that we're just going to move forward and those people are going to like either, you know, move to a different school or they'll eventually retire, you know, um, well, what happens in the meantime when they have students of color in their classrooms, you know, cause even in the most skilled teachers, like when that stuff comes up, you know, there will be pushback. And when it comes up in your classrooms and students of color are being harmed right in that moment, it's a really difficult thing to, to address and to make better. So, you know, you look at that spectrum from those people to the people who like don't even believe in it and don't want to deal with it at all. Um, so I, I think it's, I haven't really figured it out. I think it's really tough. Um, the other thing uh, Oyo said at that presentation that I think goes hand in hand with this and that I think you and I have had some recent um, sort of related experience with is um, she said, if you don't at least have a process written down for how to deal with racial aggression, you are failing your students. You can't come up with a process when emotions are high. And she mm -hmm. says, she recommends, imagine that the worst will happen and plan for it. And so I think about this, I suspect that most of our Vermont schools do not have a plan and process specific to racial aggression against teachers or students of color. And so, and I, I actually even think that um, that's come up with um, South Burlington in particular in thinking about um, racism in sports right? Like that we haven't always handled that well when, um, when um, students, athletes of color place elsewhere and get called um, uh, names. And so I'm thinking about that, like directly around that. But then I'm also thinking about some experience you and I have had recently where teachers plan some anti-racist curriculum, right? And then they go teach and they get pushback from families. And um, or a family. It's usually just one family, right? And so like, how do we prepare in advance, whether it's for racial aggression or for when we get pushback on our curriculum because we're teaching about Black Lives Matter or we're teaching about racism and families are like, whoa, 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 that's too political or that doesn't belong in school. How do we prepare ourselves with that? Because we know it's going to happen instead of being surprised and then not handling it very well. Yeah, um, I'm drawing on, no surprise, she's come up a lot, Christy Nold and um, Nedahi Stoddard, um, who's somebody who's doing this work in the Northeast Kingdom. You know, I wrote a blog post about this that suggested one way to look at it is like as a sort of tiered system of intervention and just see that, you know, um, some students, particularly white students or students who are steep, you know, in internalized dominance again just assuming that they're going to have they're going to have a reaction and they're going to need extra support 
And just like we would with, you know, literacy or math is to just write it out and be like, here are the signs, you know, tier one instruction. This is what we, we're doing for everybody. Here's the goal of it. Here's what it looks like when it's good. That's where we're putting a lot of energy. Um, but what happens when it's not working? And here's the signs when it's not working. You know, the kid is asking these kind of questions or the kid is pushing back in these kind of ways, exhibiting these kind of behaviors. What do we do? Here's tier two. Here's our plan, you know, and let's involve the families. And if that doesn't work and it's going way sideways in this way, okay, what's the next level? What's the tier three? What's the intensive support, you know? And to me, that's a helpful analogy because it says, yeah, you got to have a plan, but it also says that this is a non-negotiable, right? We're not just like, hey, let's expose more people to this and it will be better. It's like, no, like every kid is going to come out of our school system with these kind of um, understandings and these skills of analysis. Um, and, you know, really like when I look at it, it's, it's even more crucial in some ways than math and literacy, right? A kid comes out without math and literacy in some ways, like that is a bummer for them. The kid comes out without understanding um, how racism operates in this society and they're right back in there contributing to it and possibly in the worst cases, like really doing a lot of harm to people around them and themselves, you know, puts them in a really bad place. So um, I think that that kind of approach could be helpful. And then just the other piece around, it's not always about reactions. It's about the, the proactivity, right? Just kind of what we talked about earlier, it, you know, getting really serious about what kind of classroom culture do I need to create to have these conversations same with at a school level. How do we be proactive about this? Can we have affinity groups for students of color facilitated by expert educator of color um, to create healing spaces um, for these students and to have you know a little bit of one space where they can come and share about the inevitable stuff that's gonna go down? Um, how do we be proactive about how we communicate with our community about it? You know, it shouldn't be like just a teacher sending out home their curriculum letter and oh and you know by the way we're going to be dealing with these quote-unquote tough topics this year it should be where's the administration going to come down like how are they going to offer some community learning and some community spaces how are they going to signal the community hey if you have a problem with this go to this person don't be going to the teacher don't be going to that person so you've seen the teacher don't go to the school board but you know here's the process because again this is the non-negotiable this is part of the central um, purposes of schooling. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of thinking to do there, both proactive and having plans in place for, for how to react to specific situations. As a former school librarian, one of the policies I leaned heavily on in instances like this was our um, collection development policy. And, and what it meant, what it, part of it was that, um, if somebody objected to a book in my library collection, they couldn't just say, remove that book. They had to submit in writing, right? We had to form a committee. The committee had to read the book. We couldn't just like look at the title or take somebody's word for it. We had to read the book. And what it meant was that um, when somebody challenged a book um, uh, and the knee-jerk reaction always of the administration was to pull the book, it was my job to say, wait a minute, we have a policy, right? And then when faced with, okay, family, I understand. Totally, I'm willing to listen to you about the problem you have with this book. Could you please fill out this paper? Nine times out of 10, they wouldn't, right? Because then they had to write the thing down that bothered them, that scared them, or, or say it out loud, right? And then when they did, there was a whole process in place. And it made it easier for me to rest assured that I could purchase books the way that professionally I am trained to purchase books in a way that was responsive to um, the needs of my students, right? Without worrying that somebody was gonna get mad that I purchased a book about sex ed for my high school students or a book about um, uh, that had um, queer characters in it, that kids deserve to see themselves and their family members in books. And so it makes me think about, we need to rethink policies in schools and think about how are our policies preparing us to deal with the inevitable, which is you know racial aggression or other kinds of aggression in schools. And then also how are our policies preparing us for when we get pushback on our curriculum 
because more and more, I think teachers want to be teaching about this stuff, but they don't necessarily feel like um, uh, the system will have their back. But I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed having this conversation with you. That was over an hour. That went so quick. I love talking to you. I, I Let's do it again. <laughs> let's talk later. Um, I really appreciate your insights. I really appreciate you sharing your session by session guide on, on how to use this book in a discussion group. We'll be sure to put that in the transcript. And I'm just so grateful that I get to work with you. I thank you. You too. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Life Ligeros for appearing on the show and talking with me about So You Want to Talk About Race. If you're looking for a copy of So You Want to Talk About Race, check your local library. Special thanks to Audrey Holman, audio engineer extraordinaire. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit vtedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at vtedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.